Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It began last Monday with an image no one ever expected to see. O.J. Simpson in handcuffs. His ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ronald Goldman, the victims of a brutal double murder. It would end with an unbelievable drama played out on live TV. O.J. Simpson, murder suspect and fugitive, being pursued by police as the nation held its breath and Simpson's friends pleaded with the former football hero. Tato, in your opinion, do you think that O.J. murdered Nicole and Ron Goldman? In my opinion, yes. I think he's guilty. It's no disguise. It's no disguise. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Superior Court of California, County of Los Angeles. In the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA097211. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find Hi everyone and welcome to episode 5, part 2 of O.J. Simpson from fame to blame. So we've discussed right up to the point of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman being found murdered at Nicole Brown Simpson's house. And we're going to talk about now about what transpired after. So O.J. Simpson was contacted by police. They originally went to his house. There was nobody in, they were knocking on the door for 30 minutes, nobody were answering, and they couldn't find him. So they decided, because they thought there might have been something wrong with O.J. Simpson as well, that he might have been part of this and he might have been murdered himself, they decided to jump the fence. They were knocking on his house, still could not get in touch with him, and then they found a neighbour called Cato, who told them that O.J. Simpson had caught a flight the day before to Chicago for a business meeting with Hertz. O.J. Simpson was eventually contacted and he told police that he would get the next possible flight out to come and speak to them and to pick his children up. What's interesting in this is that O.J. Simpson never asked how Nicole died or where she died. Just remember that. When O.J. Simpson came home, he was asked by detectives to be interviewed, uh, just to have a general chat about, obviously, the things that happened to Nicole and to Ron, and just to gather where... O.J. Simpson was at that time, being the the spouse or the ex-spouse of Nicole, obviously was an important figure in her life, and so the police interviewed him, and O.J. Simpson had an answer for absolutely everything. He told them that he was in Chicago on a golf business trip for Hertz. He also told them that, yes, in the past, there had been some issues with violence, that police were called on multiple occasions, and that Nicole had made two police reports against O.J. Simpson. Police found the other black glove that they found at the crime scene at O.J. Simpson's property. He was then subsequently arrested for the murder of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. OJ Simpson was given the opportunity to hand himself in but chose not to do so. Instead, he disappeared with his friend, Al Cowlins, unbeknownst to his defence team. After he did not turn himself in at the agreed time, he became the subject of a low-speed pursuit in his white 1993 Ford Bronco SUV, which was being driven by Al Cowlins, his friend. OJ Simpson was sat in the back seat with a .357 Magnum pressed under his chin. OJ had left three letters behind that had been found by his defence team. Suspicion grew that OJ was going to take his own life. Would this be an act of guilt for the murders he'd committed? Or would it be an act of grief that he couldn't go on with knowing that Nicole was dead? I'll leave you to decide that one for yourself. At approximately 1.50pm, Commander Dave Gascon, LAPD's chief spokesman, publicly declared Simpson a fugitive. The police issued an all-points bulletin for him and an arrest warrant for Cowlins. At 5pm, Robert Kardashian read out O.J. Simpson's apparent suicide note. This letter was written by O.J. today. To whom it may concern. First, everyone understand I had nothing to do with Nicole's murder. I loved her, always have, and always will. If we had a problem, it's because I loved I loved her so much. Recently we came to the understanding that for now we were not right for each other, at least for now. Despite our love, we were different, and that's why we mutually agreed to go our separate ways. It was tough splitting for a second time, but we both knew it was for the best. Inside, I had no doubt that in the future we would be close friends, or more. Unlike what has been written in the press, Nicole and I had a great relationship for most of our lives together. Like all long-term relationships, we had a few downs and ups. I took the heat New Year's 1989 because that's what I was supposed to do. I did not plead no contest for any other reason but to protect our privacy 
and was advised it would end the press hype. I don't want to belabor knocking the press. But I can't believe what is being said. Most of it is totally made up. I know you have a job to do, but as a last wish, please, please, please leave my children in peace. Their lives will be tough enough. Paula, what can I say? You are special. I'm sorry, I'm not going to have, we're not going to have our chance. God brought you to me, I now see, as I leave, you'll be in my thoughts. I think of my life and feel I've done most of the right things. So why do I end up like this? I can't go on. No matter what the outcome, people will look and point. I can't take that. I can't subject my children to that. This way, they can move on and go on with their lives. Please, if I've done anything worthwhile in my life, let my kids live in peace from you, the press. I've had a good life. I'm proud of how I lived. My mama taught me to do unto others. I treated people the way I wanted to be treated. I've always tried to be up and helpful. So why is this happening? I'm sorry for the Goldman family. I know how much it hurts. Nicole and I had a good life together. All this press talk about a rocky relationship was no more than that, than, I'm sorry, was no more than what every long-term relationship experiences. All her friends will confirm that I have been totally loving and understanding of what she's been going through. At times, I have felt like a battered husband or boyfriend, but I loved her. Make that clear to everyone, and I would take whatever it took to make it work. Don't feel sorry for me. I've had a great life, great friends. Please think of the real OJ, and not this lost person. Thanks for making my life special. I hope I helped yours. Peace and love, OJ. Now, I don't know if it's about you, but he didn't really talk about Nicole at all in that suicide speech. He talked about his kids. He actually apologised to Ron Goldman's family. Did he apologise because Ron Goldman was murdered and he actually wasn't meant to be there? He was actually at the, in the wrong place at the wrong time. I'll leave you to make your decision on that one. I found that a lot that he talked about was about himself. I have had a good life. I don't want you to feel sorry for me. In a way, he does want you to feel sorry for him, and that's the whole point of him writing this suicide note. He wants everybody to feel sorry for him. He's not once mentioned Nicole. He's not shed a tear. and He's not really said anything about her, to be fair. The chase ended at 8pm at his Brentwood estate. 
After remaining in the Bronco for about 45 minutes, Simpson exited at 8.50pm with a framed family photo and went inside for about an hour, where he spoke to his mum. Shapiro then arrived and Simpson surrendered to authorities a few minutes later. In the Bronco, police found £8,000 in cash, a change of clothing and a loaded .357 Magnum, amongst other things. On the 20th of June, Simpson pleaded not guilty to both murders and was held without bail. The following day, a grand jury was called to determine whether to indict him for two murders, but was dismissed on the 23rd of June as a result of excessive media coverage that could have influenced its neutrality. Instead, authorities held probable cause hearing to determine whether to bring Simpson to trial. California Superior Court Judge Kathleen Kennedy Powell ruled on the 7th of July that there was sufficient evidence to bring Simpson to trial for the murders. At his second arraignment on July 22nd, when asked how he pleaded to the murders, Simpson stood firmly and stated, absolutely, 100%, not guilty. The trial began on the 24th of January 1995, seven months after the murders, and was televised by a closed-circuit TV camera via Court TV, and in part by other cable and network news outlets for 134 days. Judge Lance Ito presided over the trial. The two lead prosecutors were Deputy District Attorney Marsha Clark and Christopher Durden. Clark was designated as the lead prosecutor and Darden became Clark's co-counsel. Prosecutors Hank Goldberg and William Hodgman, who had successfully prosecuted high-profile cases in the past, assisted Clark and Darden. Two prosecutors who were DNA experts, Rockner Harmon and George Woody Clark, were brought in to present the DNA evidence in the case and were assisted by prosecutor Lisa Kahn. The prosecution argued that the domestic violence within the Simpson-Brown marriage accumulated in her murder. Simpson's history of abusing Brown resulted in their divorce and in pleading guilty to one count of domestic violence in 1989. On the night of the murders, Simpson attended a dance recital for his daughters and was reportedly angry with Brown because of a black dress she wore, which he stated was too tight. Simpson's then-girlfriend, Paula Barbary, wanted to attend the recital with Simpson, but he did not invite her. After the recital, Simpson returned home to a voicemail from Barbary, ending their relationship. According to the prosecution, Simpson then drove over to Brown's home in his Ford Bronco to reconcile their relationship as a result, and when Brown refused, Simpson killed her in a final act of control. During this, Ron Goldman turned up at the scene to return the eyeglasses and was murdered well in order to silence him and remove any witnesses. Afterwards, the prosecution said that Simpson walked to his Bronco and then drove home, where he parked it and walked into his house. There, he took off his bloodstained clothes, put them in a knapsack, put clean ones on and then left towards the limousine. At the airport, prosecution said that Simpson opened the knapsack, removed the clothes, the shoes and the murder weapon and threw them into the trash before putting the knapsack in one of the suitcases and heading towards his flight. The prosecution also presented 62 separate incidents of domestic violence. 
including three previously unknown incidents Brown documented in several letters she had written and placed in a bank safety deposit box. The prosecution also presented a total of 108 exhibits, including 61 drops of blood of DNA evidence allegedly linking Simpson to the murders. With no witnesses to the crime, the prosecution was dependent on DNA as the only physical evidence linking Simpson to the crime. The volume of DNA evidence in this case was unique, as the prosecution believed that it could reconstruct. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How the crime was committed with enough accuracy to resemble an eyewitness account. Marsha Clark stated in her opening statement that there was a trail of blood from the Bundy crime scene through Simpson's Ford Bronco to his bedroom at Rockingham. Simpson's DNA found on blood drops next to the bloody footprints near the victim at the Bundy crime scene. The probability of error was 1 in 9.7 billion. Simpson, Goldman and Brown's DNA was found on blood on the outside of the door and inside of Simpson's Bronco. Probability of error was 1 in 21 billion. Simpson and Brown's DNA was found on blood on a pair of socks in Simpson's bedroom with the probability error of 1 in 6.8 billion. They also found hair and fibre evidence at the scene with LAPD criminalist and hair fibre expert Susan Brockbank testified on 27th of June 1995 and FBI agent 
and fibre expert Doug Decrit testified on the 29th of June following their findings. The fibres from the glove found at Simpson's home microscopically match the one found at the crime scene, proving they were each another's mate. Both of the victims, the two gloves and the blue knit cap worn by the killer, had hair consistent with OJ Simpson. The hair in the blue knit cap worn by the killer was embedded in the seams, indicating it was there from being worn repeatedly. There was a lot more evidence when it came to fibres and hair, also blood. But a shoe print analysis on June the 19th, FBI shoe print expert William J. Bodziak testified that the bloody shoe prints found at the crime scene and inside Simpson's Bronco were made from a rare and expensive pair of Bruno Magli Italian shoes. He determined the shoes were a size 12, the same size that O.J. Simpson wore, and are only sold at Bloomingdale's. Only 29 pairs of that size were sold in the US, and one of them was sold at the same store that Simpson often buys his shoes from. Boziak also testified, despite two sets of footprints at the crime scene, only one attacker was present because they were all made by the same shoes. During cross-examination, Bailey suggested the murderer deliberately wore shoes that were the wrong size, which Bodziak dismissed as ridiculous. Simpson denied ever owning a pair of those shoes and described them as ugly-ass shoes and there was only circumstantial evidence he did. Although Photograph, later on, would find that he did wear them shoes and when he was shown the photo, his face was a picture. He also stated that that was him in the picture, but they were not his shoes. The prosecution's evidence was overwhelming, but Simpson hired a team of high-profile defence lawyers, initially led by Robert Shapiro, who was previously a civil lawyer known for settling, and then subsequently by Johnny Cochran, who at the point was known for police brutality and civil rights cases. The team also included Robert Kardashian, a friend of O.J. Simpson. The defence's team's reasonable doubt theory was summarised by compromised, contaminated and corrupted evidence in opening statements. They argued that the DNA evidence against Simpson was compromised by the mishandling of criminalists Dennis Fung and Andrea Mazzola during the collection phase of evidence gathering and that 100% of the real killer's DNA had vanished from the evidence samples. The evidence was then contaminated in the LAPD crime lab by criminalist Colin Yamauchi. And Simpson's DNA from the reference vial was transferred to all but three exhibits. The remaining three exhibits were planted by the police and thus corrupted by police fraud. The defence also questioned the timeline, claiming the murders happened at around 11pm that night. Dr Robert Hisenga testified on the 14th of July 95 that Simpson was not physically capable of carrying out the murders due to chronic arthritis and old football injuries. During cross-examination, the prosecution produced an exercise video that Simpson made a few weeks before the murders titled OJ Simpson Minimum Maintenance Fitness for Men which demonstrated that Simpson 
was anything but frail. Dr. Husenga admitted afterwards that Simpson could have committed the murders if he was in the throes of an adrenaline rush. Barry Sheck and Peter Newfield argued that the results from the DNA testing were not reliable because the police were sloppy in collecting and preserving it from the crime scene. Fung and Mazzola did admit to making several mistakes during evidence collecting, which included not always changing gloves when handling evidence items packaging and storing the evidence items using plastic bags rather than paper bags as recommended, and storing them in a police van which was not refrigerated for up to seven hours after collection. This, they argued, would allow bacteria to degrade all of the real killer's DNA and thus make the samples more susceptible to cross-contamination in the LAPD crime lab. The prosecution denied that the mistakes made by Fung and Mazzola changed the validity of the results. They noted that all of the evidence samples were testable and that most of the DNA testing was done at the two consulting labs, not the LAPD crime lab, where the contamination supposedly happened. The defence initially only claimed that three exhibits were planted by the police, but eventually argued that virtually all the blood evidence against Simpson was planted in a police conspiracy. They accused prison nurse Thano Paratis, criminalist Dennis Fung, Andrea Mazzola, and Colin Yamucci, and Vanatta, and Furman for participating in a plot to frame Simpson. In closing arguments, Cochrane called Furman and Vanatta twins of deception and told the jury to remember Vanatta as the man who carried the blood and Furman as the man who found the glove. The last exhibit allegedly planted was the bloody glove found at Simpson's property by Furman. Unlike the sock and the back gate, the defence provided no physical or eyewitness evidence to support their claim that the prosecution could then refute. Defence attorney F. Lee Bailey suggested that Furman found the glove at the crime scene, picked it up with a stick and placed it in a plastic bag and then concealed it in a sock when he drove to Simpson's home with Detective Lang, Fanata and Phillips. Bailey suggested that he planted the glove in order to frame Simpson with the motive being either racism or a desire to become the hero in a high-profile case. Sheck also suggested that Furman broke into Simpson's Bronco and used the glove like a paintbrush to plant blood onto the side of the Bronco. The prosecution denied that Furman planted the glove. They noted that several officers had already combed over the crime scene for almost two hours before Furman arrived and none had noticed the second glove at the scene. Lang testified that 14 other officers were there when Furman arrived and all said that was only one glove at the crime scene. It was also added that Furman did not know whether Simpson had an alibi, if there was any witnesses to the murders, whose blood was on the glove, that the Bronco belonged to Simpson, or whether Keelan had already searched the area where the glove was found. During cross-examination, Furman would be asked if he used a derogatory word towards African Americans in 10 years prior to his testimony. He denied this. A few months later, the defence discovered the audio tapes of Furman repeatedly using the derogatory word 41 times in total, eight years before the murders. The Furman tapes become the cornerstone for the defence's case that Furman's testimony lacked credibility. 
Clark called the tapes the biggest red herring there ever was. After McKinney was forced to hand over the tapes to the defence, Furman says he asked the prosecution for a redirect to explain the context of the tapes, but the prosecution and his fellow police officers abandoned him after Ito played the audio tapes in open court for the public to hear. The public reaction to the audio tapes was explosive and compared to the video of the Rodney King beating from a year prior. After the trial, Furman said that he was not a racist and apologised for his previous language, saying that he was play-acting for a screenplay when the tapes were made, and he had been asked to do it as dramatic as possible. Many of his minority former co-workers expressed support for him. On September 6, 1995, Furman was called back to the witness stand by the defence after the prosecution refused to redirect him to answer more questions. The jury was absent, but the exchange was televised. Furman, facing a possible prosecution for perjury, was instructed by his attorney to invoke the Fifth Amendment to avoid self-incrimination to two consecutive questions he was asked. Defence attorney Ullman asked Furman if it was his intention to plead the Fifth to all questions, and Furman's attorney instructed him to reply yes. Ullman then briefly spoke with the other members of the defence and said that he had only just one more question. Did you plant or manufacture any evidence in this case? Following the attorney's instruction, Furman replied, I choose to assert my Fifth Amendment privilege. The final nail in the coffin came on June 15, 1995, when Christopher Darden surprised Marsha Clark by asking Simpson to try on the gloves found at the crime scene and his home. The prosecution had early decided against asking Simpson to try on the gloves because they had been soaked in blood from Simpson, Brown and Goldman and frozen and unfrozen several times. Instead, they presented a witness who testified that Brown had purchased a pair of gloves in the same size in 1990 at Bloomingdale's for Simpson along with a receipt and a photo during the trial of Simpson's earlier wearing the same type of gloves. The leather gloves appeared too tight for Simpson to put it on easily, especially over the latex gloves worn underneath. Clark claimed that Simpson was acting when he appeared to be struggling to put the gloves on. Richard Rubin, former vice president of glove maker Aris Isotona Inc., which makes the gloves in question, testified on the 12th of September 1995 that the gloves had indeed shrunk from their original size. Darden produced a new pair of the same type of gloves which fit Simpson when he tried them on. Johnny Cochran would later go on to coin the phrase It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. You must acquit. In closing arguments, Darden ridiculed the notion that police officers might have wanted to frame Simpson. He questioned why, if the LAPD was against Simpson, they went to his house eight times on domestic violence calls against Brown between 1986 and 1998, but did not arrest him. The defence couldn't refute any of the prosecution's claims, so instead dedicated its entire argument to attacking the LAPD, particularly Furman, Lang and Vanatta. He emphasised that Furman had proved that he had repeatedly referred to black people in a derogatory term and also to have boasted of beating young black men in his role as a police officer. Cochrane then compared Furman to Adolf Hitler and referred to him as a genocidal racist. 
The jury arrived at their verdict by 3pm on the 2nd of October after only four hours of deliberation, but it postponed the announcement. Superior Court of California, County of Los Angeles, in the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA097211. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant Orenthal James Simpson not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Nicole Brown Simpson, a human being, as charged in Count 1 of the information. Superior Court of the State of California, County of Los Angeles, in the matter of the people of the State of California versus Orenthal James Simpson. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Ronald Lyle Goldman, a human being, as charged in count two of the information. Even with the overwhelming evidence against O.J. Simpson, he was found not guilty, and the jury had determined that the prosecution didn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that O.J. Simpson committed the murders and therefore was found not guilty. Obviously, I've got my opinions on it, but I'd love to know what everybody else thinks. Do you think O.J. Simpson was guilty or not? Myself and Tanya will be doing a bonus episode on this that will come out probably next week. And we're going to talk about a video that O.J. Simpson released where he was hypothetically talking about murdering Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown. And it's just madness. It's absolute madness. He's talking about how he did it, but then reverts to being hypothetical. Anyway, I hope you've liked the episode. Join us again next time. And thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed it.